Today's episode of the Hot 4 podcast is brought to you by Ninkasi Rentals and Finance. Stay tuned to find out how you and your brewery can grow throughout tough economic conditions. I'm Nick Law, and you're listening to the Hot Forward podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hot Forward is a show entirely dedicated to the craft beer industry, featuring interviews, discussions, and stories from the whole supply chain from grain to glass. So grab yourself a beer and get ready to hop forward in the brewing and beer business. Welcome, brewers and beer drinkers, to the Hot Four podcast. On the show this week, we'll be discussing all things Goozers and Lambic with Frank Boone from Belgium's Boone Brewery. I'm not going to lie, I attempted to say that in Dutch during the recording and, well... Let's just say I'll stick with good old-fashioned Yorkshire, eh? Boone is a Belgian brewery that is known for its traditional lambic beers and blends known as goozers, which are fermented using wild yeasts and aged in oak barrels. The beers have a unique taste and aroma and have won a wide variety of awards. Chances are you'll have tasted these beers for yourself, but if you have yet to be indoctrinated into all things wild, then you're in for a real treat. Incidentally, I only first came across Boone relatively recently during lockdown, in which I was invited to an online tasting session with Carl Boone, hosted by the fabulous brewery market and Paul Davies of Ale Hunters. Up until this point, my foray into lambics and goozers had mostly been through tastings at a bottle share that I'd go to regularly. And it felt at the time like it was the only beer style that other people brought and the only beer style that scored high marks. And to me, it all tasted of barnyard and goat and musty leather. So I couldn't quite see the fascination with it and what the fuss was all about until this guided tasting. And I can assure you, when I go to bottle shares now, you can guess the beer styles that I take with me. I've been meaning to reach out to Carl for some time and ask him onto the show and was exceedingly pleased when he accepted my invitation. In this episode, we talk about the rich history of the brewery, fermenting, blending, barrels, fruit beers, and the challenges Boone face when making these time-honoured beers again and again and again. We also delve into the effects of Brexit and the recession on breweries in the UK and Europe. Before the UK left the European Union, there were concerns about tariffs and trade agreements, which, lo and behold, have come to fruition and have had a major impact on the beer industry. But before we crack open a rather wild episode, very much in the vein of talking about finances and the economy, we have a guest feature with Peter and James from Ninkasi Rentals to chat about how you and your brewery can grow throughout tough economic conditions. There's some great content here. It's about 20 minutes long, so stay tuned and we'll be back in just a moment. I'm joined by James Lewis and Peter Godwin from Ninkasi Rentals and Finance. Hello. Hello there. So before we look today at how breweries can grow in tough economic conditions, can you introduce yourselves to our listeners and tell us briefly about Nincasi Rentals and Finance? Well, I'm Peter Godwin. I'm partly retired, but I started Nincasi Rentals and Finance in 2017 with Andy Thompson. 
Before that, I started Close Brewery Rentals in 2007. Before that, I had a couple of other businesses. And before that was 25 years in retail and corporate banking. Hi, Nick. I'm James. I've worked within the rental businesses for nearly 20 years. I've been in the craft brewing sector for nearly 10, having run eCasks for five years. And now I'm proud to be the MD for Ninkasi Rentals and Finance. Ninkasi is primarily a fermentation tank rental company. We have around 300 tanks in the UK and have customers ranging from Cornwall to Aberdeen. Great. Well, it's it's fantastic to have you both on the show. I think most brewers listening are aware that times are tough for businesses right now. But given both of your wealths of experience in the brewing industry, in equipment and finance, I wondered if you could take a few minutes to talk about the similarities and differences of today's financial climate and how they correlate with the last recession, just as we start to look at how breweries can grow, even despite these tough economic conditions. The recession that we're experiencing now is actually the same, but very different from 2008. 2008 was really a a bank-led problem. Uh, Basically, banks had no money. Inflation was very, very low. And unemployment actually was quite high with static wages. And of course, now we're really in an inflation-led recession on the back of coronavirus, the war in Ukraine and Brexit. Uh, But strange enough, we have full employment and interest rates are on the way up. So the result is the same. Uh, We're all feeling worried, troubled and a bit impoverished. But the reasons for getting here and actually where we are as a country are quite different. Which companies did well out of the last recessionary period, Peter, in 2008? Because I know that you were running close brewery rentals at the time. And I know that you helped support an awful lot of breweries that came out of the back of that? Yes, it, um, it was interesting. I started Clover Rentals in 2007, which probably wasn't very clever, um, but we didn't see mm. the problems coming. But yeah, obviously in those days, the craft brewing sector, whilst vibrant, wasn't as large as it is now, um, relatively small. But there were a number of breweries that did very well during that period. One that comes to mind was Sharks Brewery. And really the common denominator was they were quite forward looking. They had a very good plan in terms financially, operationally, as well as brewing good beer. And I'm not just talking about Sharps, I'm talking about breweries that did very well. And so they were very careful with how they funded their business. Um, They didn't overextend themselves, but they kept production going in pace with the sales, and that was all part of the strategy underpinned by they knew how they were going to fund it all. Because obviously in the last, in 2022 certainly, there's been a myriad of breweries that have closed for various reasons and have been well published online and through different platforms. And the reasons don't all seem to be the same. Obviously some are are linked to the coronavirus and economic output, but a lot have been linked to reduction in sales and driving overheads. And obviously, CO2 and energy prices have been a real concern for brewers and also for the publicans, which we didn't see in 2008. It wasn't the same economic challenges. So to come out of 2022 and into 2023, I think the opportunities for brewers moving forward, although obviously 
the barriers are higher, actually the reduction of competition should and could be seen as quite a positive in the market. I think the common thing between the previous recession and this recession in the breweries that are failing are the ones that kind of live on the edge. They are either highly leveraged or they're very little spare capacity, either financial or in some other way. And kind of the first puff of bad news has really uh, caused them a problem. Doesn't necessarily mean they're badly managed, but it, it may be that they've been had a greater risk appetite and that risk appetite has come back to bite them a bit. Mm-hmm. I wondered whether it's interesting you say about breweries living on the edge. You know, it, it is a big risk factor if you, if you want to have that exponential growth really quickly. You know, you, you've got to fund your business really quickly. You've got to drive that growth. And without mentioning too many names, I think we all know who we're probably talking about, it doesn't always pay off that gamble. We can all see that things are quite tough economically, but I wonder whether some of the anecdotal stories that we hear almost make it feel like it's, I don't want to say it's not bad out there because it is, but make it feel like it's worse than it is. And so I, I wonder whether brewers should be looking at the data that's gathered by the financial sector for hospitality and the various trends and what's going on beyond what maybe people are hearing through social media. I've always said in business, you kind of, you have to take as much information as you can get from all sources. But at the end of the day, you've got to make your own mind up as to what you're going to do. And sometimes it's not the most obvious thing that makes your business successful. Doing the same as everybody else can be good and it can be bad. So you've really got to look at where you are in the market and what you want to achieve. Mm. It's not everybody wants a massive business. Some people want a small business. Um, and plan around your goal. Now, banks, financial institutions have a huge amount. They live on data, they make decisions on data, but they tend to publish very macro data. So it can be quite difficult to see how it is relevant to you. But it could be that within that, they tend to lump everything as hospitality, but within there, there's hotels, there's pubs, bars, clubs, uh, on trade, off trade, all sorts of things, and you've got to delve down in it a bit to see what's really going on. And it could be that a sector that you're interested in could be showing slightly different signs from the overall hospitality sector, um, and you, that's that's the bit of information that you would find the most valuable. Mm. So for a metric within your own business, what should brewers be looking out for in their data? Now, obviously, sales is a is a big clue there. You know, ultimately, I think should be the bottom line that a brewer looks at whether they're selling, what they're producing, and how much, etc. But are there any other sets of data brewers do have access to that they can look at and digest and work out what their key performers are? From me, I look at brewery data very regularly because obviously we're looking at how different breweries are performing and we're looking at uh, their management KPIs and we're underwriting it. <laughs> I mean, you're right, revenue is important, but you can't sleep at night through revenue alone. Uh, obviously, profitability has to be the main driver. Mm. Um, but moreover than that, I would also look at gross profit of around 65% is what on average I would expect to see. And then revenue falls to the bottom line. If you're 
averaging a profitability of somewhere between 8 and 12% of your revenue. That's what I would consider is average for the industry. Obviously, some breweries will be operating slightly under that quite happily all day long because of the gearings that they've got and what they're looking to achieve. And some breweries and some of the smaller breweries will be operating on a higher profit level because they haven't got the overhead. But most commercial breweries, I would expect to see in and around those levels of a GP of 65 with an NP of between 8 and 12. If I'm looking at those sets of financial information, then I know that the business is being well run and well managed, that they've got all of their primary overheads in control, and I can see where the money is going through the business. If I look outside of that, then obviously there are some sets of numbers that won't look that way. And I suppose that's why and when Incassi really can add value, because we're not just looking at the numbers. The numbers are absolutely important, but actually understanding the industry is as valuable. So we all know, and I guarantee a lot of your listeners listening to this will be thinking, my numbers don't look like that at the moment. Well, no, because the last two years have been exceptionally painful for a lot of people in the industry. And therefore, a lot of the numbers that come through don't look like that. And we recognize and understand that. And we know to ask the questions, are the numbers relatable to historic events over the last two or three years, or are they relatable to a more symptomatic issue? Is it because they need to drive revenue and drive sales and overheads remain fixed, at which point they're trying to drive that net profitability? Or is it actually a metric based on the current economic situation? At Ninkasi, we, we don't just look at the bare bone numbers. We're not a computer says no organization. We understand the numbers. We then have to understand the organization. And nine times out of 10, we actually already understand the brewery. We already know the people in charge. We know the the directors or we know the head brewers. We know where they've come from. We know their history. And we know how to work with these people. I mean, if you look at Shawshot, for example, we know James really, really well at Shawshots. We know his history with Cloudwater. We know his history with SSB. We know what he's doing with Shawshots. So when he, he came and spoke to us about different projects that he had going on. It was an easy decision because we're making the decision based on our knowledge of the industry and of the people as much as we are on the numbers. So yes, numbers are absolutely important. And for sanity of any brewer owner, they they, they want to keep that bottom line number in the black. But actually in terms of allowing their business to grow, Ninkasi aren't just interested in the bottom line numbers. We're interested in the overall package and their position in the industry which mm. takes an industry insider to actually understand. Yeah. So just while we're talking about growing your brewery and financing it, crowdfunding has come under much scrutiny over the past few years with breweries like Red Church and Hop Stuff and most recently, as I alluded to earlier, Wild Beer Co, um, <laughs> seeing investors out of pocket through pre-pack administration deals and that kind of thing. So it's, it, it's getting in isolated cases, a bit of a bad rap, but is crowdfunding still a viable option for breweries looking to expand? And if so, why is it a viable alternative to, let's say, like traditional lending? Okay, well, let me fire off at that one. Uh, I think the first thing to remember is why crowdfunding got a place in the in the financing world in the, to start with. Really, when you have very low interest rates and a growing economy, investors are looking for places to put their money. Stick it in a deposit account, at best will get you 1%, maybe less. 
So something like crowdfunding, which generally offered uh, much higher levels of return, so people started to look for alternative methods of investing, and crowdfunding seemed to offer a sort of window into that. And obviously there was also the brew dog effect with equity for punks, um, which sort of sparked off breweries thinking they could go direct to their consumers to raise money. And again, crowdfunding platforms gave them the means to do that. But to me, it's always been a bit of a scandal waiting to happen or waiting to be discovered uh, because the quality of information being put out, really there was no control over, no rigorous challenge to what was being said. Um, So, of course, there's been horror stories in the brewery world as well as others. And I think what it's now done is made it very difficult for crowdfunding to be um, relied upon in the future particularly as we've got higher interest rates and people can now start putting money on deposit and get 5% or or perhaps even more in pretty safe investments. Now, why should they take the risk of putting money into into beer production with the hope of getting a payday, but possibly not? Hmm. I think from my point of view, I see it a little bit more uh, black and white in, in terms of the question. A couple of years ago, when I was looking at breweries who were crowdfunding, I was seeing breweries being able to generate between two and three hundred percent of what they were actually looking to crowdfund. Uh, And it seemed at the time, and quite a lot of breweries took advantage of the fact that people were willing to invest in that way. The answer to your question is in recent months, certainly the last six to nine months, um, the breweries who I've been talking to have been looking to crowdfund have only been able to generate back between 15 and, and 20%, 20%, if that at times. And they're not on large capital projects. They're on actually quite small capital projects. So I think the appetite for crowdfunding from the public has actually disappeared. As we all know, times are tough and people aren't looking to invest in their favorite brewery when actually they need to keep the heating on. So I think the opportunity currently for crowdfunding has dissipated. I think the conversations that you're talking about, about the other breweries, I think will have a longer and deeper impact than actually the recession will in terms of crowdfunding, because I think that investors will become wary about putting their money into, as Peter said, actually unregulated areas of finance. Crowdfunding, I don't believe at the moment, is currently an opportunity for breweries to raise finances. And I wonder whether it's going to come back anytime in the near future. Because I just don't see, especially with all the bad publicity as you've been discussing, whether it's going to be there anytime soon. So if brewers are looking to fuel growth of their brewery, because let's face it, although there's a lot of uncertainty in the market at the moment, there are still breweries that are growing and need that tank capacity and need the new equipment, both to obviously increase how much beer they're making, but also make cost savings in other areas. But if it's becoming harder to fund that growth, either through like new wave lending options like crowdfunding or the more traditional options like going to the bank and asking the bank manager for a loan, like how can brewers raise the funds they need to be able to take the business to the next level? And you've raised the $64,000 question. (laughs) And, And there isn't. There isn't a magic answer. That is the thing that breweries have forever struggled with. You you run a poorly capitalised business, any business, you're at risk. Um, And you're at risk from a downturn if you've not got 
some resources behind you, you're always taking a risk. So the first thing I would say is seek out every bit of capital you can find because that that makes your business more robust and gives you some options for expansion. And it may be capital comes from different sources. I mean, in businesses I've done, I've generally looked for financial partners. I don't necessarily mean banks, but people or institutions that have money that would have a reason to join in my business um, because either they're a supplier to it or they're a beneficiary of, of something that I do. Next thing I'd say is rent stuff. The good thing about rental is it tends to be flexible. You tend to get some technical support and it's looked at by financial institutions. In some ways, it's ignored. It's it's outside what they would normally class as borrowing. So it doesn't preclude you normally from borrowing money from, from a, a, a standard financial institution. So renting stuff definitely has a place. And all the all the large companies, corporations, have um, used rental in the past, typically for vehicles, fleets of trucks, premises, as well as large items of plant and machinery. Next thing, finance with specialists. You know, look for people who understand the industry, who aren't going to take the umbrella away when it starts raining. And again, there are there are a few specialists and, and in Cassie is developing a finance arm and you can talk to their customers about what their experience has been in uh, COVID and you know this recession. I think you'll get a good story there. I would say go to your bank for working capital because they should be able to provide you with something. But be careful where you use the money from banks. Buying assets on overdraft really shouldn't be done. You, know, you need to keep your overdraft for paying your creditors and allowing your debtors to run up a little bit if you, you've got some trade of that nature. But the, the final thing I would say is retain profits. You know, just because you make a good profit in one year, don't suddenly decide you're going to have a brilliant holiday and a new car and an extension on the house. You know, business is tough. Following every good time, there's probably going to be a downtime. And certainly when I've been in business, uh, I've reinvested the profits to make my companies more robust. Uh, and live like like a pauper until I'm a long way down the road and are certain that what I've got I can actually afford to spend. So just to round up then, what are the options and forecasts for growth for the brewing industry in 2023? I think the forecast for growth in 2023, if I'm being very honest, is still indetermined. I don't think there's anybody right now that would be able to tell you exactly what the forecast for growth looks like. The hope is that with so many brewery closures over the last 12 months, that that allows for space in the market and that with the inflation going to drop in 2023, as it naturally will do, because obviously it's recorded through CPI and RPIX indexes, it will naturally drop in 2023. That, I think, will hopefully give consumers confidence, which will hopefully bring consumers back into the pubs and Easter wit. And that, I think, will drive growth in the industry. That then, I hope, will allow the extra space that's in the market to allow brewers who have maintained to grow their businesses. I think that Peter's absolutely right, that if I was a brewery owner, I would be looking to keep hold of capital. 
I would not be looking to extend my line of credit on my balance sheet because I think that is potentially dangerous and you become overly leveraged. So I would be looking at a cash flow positive solution. And rental is a very good option for businesses. I'm not saying it's the right option for every business. And obviously, every business will make their own decisions. But it does allow businesses to grow quickly through assets that are already in market and allow them to take advantage of the upturn in the market as quickly as possible, therefore allowing them to drive that bottom line and support future options for their business. Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us this week. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that are now asking the question, well, how do I go about financing and renting some equipment? So if anyone's listening to this and they're looking to rent or finance equipment for their brewery and find out more and speak to one of the Ninkasi team, how can they do that? Well, I'm sure that most people either know me or Paul Evans, and I've probably got our mobile numbers stored away somewhere. Um, if not, just go onto the website, www.ninkassirentals.co.uk. Uh, we're on all the usual social media platforms, or just pick up the phone. You know, we are normal people. You will speak to a person, I promise you. And just talk to us, ask us questions. We're always happy to try and help and, and try and guide people. It's about supporting the industry at the end of the day. Now, if you haven't got your goozer lined up, what are you doing? Head to your local independent bottle shop and grab a boon. That's 108 if you're lucky enough to find one. I mean, mwah, an exceptional beer. We'll be talking to Carl Boone all about goozers and lambic brewing after this short message. Here at Hot Forward, we are as passionate about brewing a great business as much as we are about making great beer. We're creative beer specialists, offering marketing, branding, and commercial development for breweries and beer businesses of all shapes and sizes. We're here to help you grow your beer business in a profitable and sustainable way. With experience in brand building, marketing and design, business development and commercial brewing, we can help you in the following areas. Brand development, marketing strategies, brewery consultancy and commercial success. I'm Nick. And I'm Sean. And we're here to help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. Visit hotforward.beer today to find out more. Thanks for your time. And we look forward to hearing from you soon. Today, I'm joined by Carl Boone of Belgium's renowned Boone Brewery, or in Dutch... Boone. Look at that, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that. How are you doing, sir? Uh, I'm doing pretty good, thank you very much. Great, well, it's great to have you on the podcast. I'm reasonably confident that many of our listeners will, you know, to one degree or another, be familiar with Boone. But for those who aren't, can you tell us and share with us the rich history of the brewery. Yeah, all right. So the, the brewery was uh, started by my father in 1975. Uh, he started as a blender. Uh, he started from scratch in a small cellar. Um, and his goal was basically to take over another blender um, here in Lembeck, which is where we're situated today, or the town where we're situated today. Um, and that blender, Mr. DeWitz, um, he actually had no successors, so he was an unmarried man. He had no children, 
Um, but he made, or he was known to make, uh, very nice bottles of Goethe, Oude Goethe. And um, my father knew him through friends with whom he actually went to the blendery to buy Lambic and Goethe, even when my father was 16, 17 years old. And then um, the Witz at some point told my father, look, I don't really find a successor, but, you know, if someday someone feels like they want to take over and, you know, just for the for the value of the buildings, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it. And that kind of stuck, I think, with my father. Um, and so he decided to, uh, at a certain point, he decided to really go for it. And so he started as an, at that time, you had to be 21 years old. So officially, he was 21. He was 21 in 1975, in September. And in November, he got his uh, VAT number, became an, a real independent business. And then he set off to, to take over the VITS, which actually happened two, three years later on the, on the change between 1977 and 1978. That's a bit the start um, with the goal to make uh, Lambic beers out of and out of Amazing. So, I mean, in that part of, it's Flanders, isn't it? The, the region you're in. So yeah. I, I would imagine Gerza and Lambics, I mean, it's pretty path course around there, isn't it? Are they, because I'd love to go to Belgium myself. I've never been. All right. It's on the bucket list, so to speak. <laughs> Are they one of the most drunk beer styles out there? You'll have to forgive my ignorance to say that I drink a lot of beer and a lot of Belgian beers, <laughs> but I, I'm just, I'm not actually that brushed up on my uh, Belgian beer knowledge. Shame on me. In terms of like how much they're drunk in comparison to lagers and other things around there, how popular is Gerza and Lambic? Today it's a, it's a niche. So, in, uh, but if I compare it to let's say the, the start of the twentieth century, so let's say a hundred years ago or just over hundred years ago, Lambic and Faro, which is also a Lambic beer, were like one of the main beers drunk, uh, definitely in our region uh, and here in in Belgium. And um, because there were no lager beers yet. Um, or that were that present, at least in, in Belgium. It changed after the First World War when Germans also introduced a lot of their beer, beer culture here. Um, they also, a lot of breweries were, were destroyed. The equipment was stolen and used to make weaponry. Um, but today, um, so there was a whole revolution during the last century, going from actual lambic beers and other, other, other local beers, basically. So every region really had their own local beers. And this really changed in the last century. Um, in the second half, also, um, it's also something my father really noticed noticed very hard in the past. Um, that would, that actually a lot of the brewers that were making typical beers for certain regions in Belgium um, started to close down because they they couldn't compete with the, the larger breweries who were making um, pilsner beers or lager beers. Um, um, they tried to compete on price, but the quality wasn't there because the pricing on those uh, lager beers was um, it had an advantage of scale, raw materials were, were maybe cheaper, um, and smaller breweries, you know, they're, they're just one-man or two-man operations with very primitive yeah. installations. So the quality of the beer wasn't always fantastic. And so there were, those were the big challenges and, in the past. And so this kind of changed uh, beer consumption very much in the last century. But this, of course, since the, let's say the 70s, 80s, um, my father included, where there were only a few people who restarted, who started a new brewery and focused on local beers or special beers, specialty beers. The term specialty beer didn't really even really exist yet at that point. Um, and since then, of course, uh, the, 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 with a lot of work and with a lot of work on, on quality of the beer, um, the, the specialty beers actually came back for a big part. But a big part of the consumption is still today uh, lager beers. Uh, and in terms of Lambic, it really is... Uh, um, a niche 
and especially if you're isn't, yeah. Yeah. So when did you take on the brewery from your father? Um, well, officially, so it's my brother and myself, my brother Jos um, and myself who have taken over the brewery. Um, now, our father has retired since um, about two years ago. Um, we're still here every day, though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but no, that's no problem. <laughs> so what's that transition been like? Because obviously Boone's very well respected in the world of beer, particularly, you know, particularly, like you say, for people like um, the late celebrated beer writer, Michael Jackson, you know, making breweries and beers like Boone, yeah. you know, familiar to all. What was that like taking on the mantle of a brewery like Boone? Well, it's a bit uh, two-sided story, I think, because one, you, one side you have my brother who took over the brewery um, alongside me. My brother is six years older than I am. He's now 34. Um, I'm 28. Um, but my brother was active in the brewery since he was eight years old. Right. <laughs> um, but literally, um, at that point, it was a very small operation. I think there were two people working here next to my father. Um, it was a very small operation. And so the the um, my father, my brother could easily just walk into the brewery after school, check out what what has been going on, what, what has happened in the brewery, and um, um, he, he for him it was always obvious he would work in the brewery. So also when he grew up, he always talked to my father about the future, about new investment plans, and so on and so forth. So he's always very and he was also very interested. He's he's the one who is actual who's the actual brewer. Mm. He, he he does the production planning, the daily uh, follow up on on quality and production, um, on operations actually. Um, but that's his really his side of the brewery. So for him, it became quite natural. I think um, he also, after his studies, he studied as a bioengineer. He rolled into the brewery uh, immediately um, for his full time job, let's say, and 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 so he never worked anywhere else. So it was really for him, maybe you could say a very smooth transition since almost when he was born. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> until uh, until today. For me, it was more of a different story. I um. Uh, I think I really decided to start to work in the brewery uh, when I was 16 or 17 years old. I, and I actually told my father that, look, I want to, to do this later. My father also always like never pushed, but he, he, he gave like, um, some, some, he gave, always gave the option. Like, look, if you're interested, just let me know. Um, cause we were always, um, working in the brewery during the summer, during weekends at festivals and so on. So there was always this, uh, this link anyway, we lived right next to the brewery as well. Right. So it was um, part of our life. Really. We grew up here. We played with our, in the brewery, we, we, we've been, we played with our bikes. We drove down inside, we drove inside the buildings. Yeah. <laughs> Again, it was a bit smaller than, than today. <laughs> but um, no, then I, then I, then we started. And uh, oh, I was going. when I, when I decided to start in the brewery in, in, uh, when I was 16, 17, I told my father, he said, okay, that's good. Uh, he was, I think, quite happy. He didn't really show it so quickly, but <laughs> I think it made sense. <laughs> and then he uh, uh, we, we told me, like, look, it's maybe good if you can do these kind of studies based on what I was also interested in. I'm more of, a, of an economics guy, uh, marketing guy. So I went into applied economic sciences, studied marketing and logistics as well. Mm. And uh, um, yeah, in a way, you're always... You know, we're always talking about beer at home uh, with my, my father, especially. Um, we're never really talking about football or <laughs> other stuff. No, it's really just about, about beer and breweries and brewing history and uh, beer quality, science behind it. It's 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 90% of what we talk about. And so 
uh, in a way, again, starting in the brewery, it's all quite natural. So the first day that I started in the brewery, I didn't need much explanation. I just started working and picked up where I left off, let's say, over the, the last summer. So it was, it all felt quite natural in a way. But uh, again, at that point, the brewery is already a bit bigger. You get, you have, of course, um, um, you work with more people. So it, there's an adjustment, of course, where on one side, you have always followed the brewery and been part of the brewery. Um, from the family part, but then when you start working in it, of course, you also have the the, the side of, of of the colleagues uh, um, understanding who does what, um, understanding who, who uh, you know, understand, to understand the, the daily dynamic, let's say, which is what I think was easier for my for my, for my brother to pick up because he really worked in the brewery much more in the past. But yeah, it's 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 uh, in the end. I think a smooth transition, and of course, my father, he's still here today. Um, he so has so much knowledge, so much experience. So we we're not asking him to leave either. It's just like, yeah, yeah. yeah it's good that you're here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how many people work there? Uh, now we have uh, so my brother, myself, and then on top uh, another twenty employees. Right. Okay. And how yeah. many hectoliters annually? We're going to be at, I think, 21,000 hectoliters this year. Right, okay. Yeah. So, naturally, um, I want to look at brewing lambics and uh, goozers and blending and the aging process this week on the podcast. So, firstly, can you take us through the brewing and fermentation process for you there and, and talk us through everything from brewing it, mm. mashing it and all that jazz, right through to how you age and blend those beers? Yeah. For making lambic, so first of all, you need the right ingredients. Um, in our case, we will use um, water from our own well, um, no, so no city water, um, water from our own well. It's a well at 40 meters deep. Um, we'll soften down the water and take some iron out of it, but after, next to that, it's actually perfect brewing water. Um, and then you need um, at least 30% wheat or maximum 40% wheat. So there's a variation, but we use 40% wheat and then 60% uh, malted barley. So that's unmalted wheat um, to make lambic. So those are the main ingredients in the start. Um, during boiling, you'll also we'll also add um, aged hops. Um, so when we're making the brew, actually we follow the method of uh, the turbid mash method. And to explain that in a few, let's say in a few easy ways, it, in a really easy way, basically what we're trying to achieve is we make a brew where um, there is a lot of complex sugars in the in, in the in the in the wort. Um, when we are going to ferment the beer, when the beer is going to start fermenting, it's um, wild yeast that will ferment these uh, the, these sugars. But the interesting part is that if you have complex sugars, uh, wild yeast such as Brettanomyces yeast, for example, mostly, they can transform those very slowly. They will take their time. But uh, other, let's say, bacteria or other types of yeasts, let's say, for example, for top fermented top fermented beers. For them, those those sugars are too complex. But though the challenge is during brewing that we have as much as possible of these complex sugars, that when we're actually uh, fermenting and aging the beer, that you can reach apparent beer fermentations of 95 to even exactly 100%. Right. So there's no fermentable sugars left. Yeah. That's and, some mean attenuation you've got going on there. Yeah, exactly. So if you look at <laughs> lambic beer in our... Hooters, um, at older than maybe two or three years old, we calculate between 90 to 100% at, at any age. 
Right. I'm preparing to uh, use fermentation. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So it's 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 um, yeah. That's what you need for lemon. Yeah. Um, of course, for the fermentation. So after we will boil the beer. So it will, brew will take about 13, 12, 13 hours. Um, start from from starting to mash all the way to the end of boiling. Boiling is about six hours. Wow, six hours. Yeah. While we're boiling, we'll add aged hops. So aged hops is. Um, not because we, we don't want uh, floral flavors, not we don't want citrusy flavors. We're um, looking for um, not looking for bitterness either necessarily, but really we're going for the bacteriostatic characteristic of hops. So this means um, the, the fact that um, basically in hops you have um, 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 I've just forgotten the name <laughs> in English, but um, Hops is a characteristic that it will actually so you have a, a bacteria has a has a membrane around the the the, the, the cell. Um, yeast has a membrane and a cell wall. But basically, hops will help destroy the membrane, but not the cell wall. So you can actually make sure your your yeasts are protected against unwanted bacteria by adding hops. So that's the idea of or a bit the idea behind um, making sure your beer keeps where keeps well for a longer time, mm. um, and also that you're, you're you're creating a good environment for your your yeast so that's why we actually add hops and we add quite a big amount of hops in it compared to what you taste of it you almost really don't notice it maybe some little bit of bitterness um not too much in a way that it's still nice in the complexity of the beer in the balance of the beer and so after boiling we will go in the cool ship um and on the cool ship it will stay in our case for about five hours at that point i will and when it's in the cool ship it's a big large open vessel um shallow open vessel um we will open windows we'll start a ventilator in the room uh, and so we'll pull in fresh air from outside that way and it's with the fresh air also as well with the environmental yeast in the brew house itself that we get that the wort is being inoculated on the cool in the cool ship um, and after those five hours it's pumped towards our large odors or, or barrels um, and if you count after Again. I can cut that you, out. <laughs> but if you count after um, 24 hours, you can actually um, count between 20 to even 100 million cells per milliliter. So right. it's, it's, yeah, because simply those, those you have a sugar rich environment, the yeast go on there, um, it can, they, they grow exponentially. So every hour they multiply. So, ex, so times two every hour. So, you can imagine that it. <laughs> I was going to ask how you did. You know, obviously, I, I presumed you'd do cell counts, um, yeah, yeah. which obviously you do. I was, I was going to ask about that. I am quite curious. Do you ever get any works that have a lower cell count than you're hoping for the end of that five-hour cool ship period? And if so, what do you do? <laughs> uh, normally, no. Um, but the only thing I must say uh, in, in in Belgium, it, it um, yeah, we have quite strict. Uh, let's say in the EU, perhaps, or in Europe. We have quite strict um, food regulations, and so the cool ship is in in a room where the walls are painted, and sometimes the walls, after so many years, need to be repainted. Otherwise, we get fines because it doesn't look nice, and so on and so forth. Mm. But if you paint the walls, you actually do notice that fermentation will start slower because you have less less yeast going on the beer, right. simply because there's also um, an environment culture in 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 the brew house itself. And so that's something you do notice. So when you when you when when in, in those 
few years, we don't really do that so often, exactly just to avoid it, but um, that, that walls need to be painted, for example. Um, then we will, um, for example, we'll just put beer in, in the cool ship, keep the windows actually closed for just a, a, a little bit of extra time. Then the room fills up with all the the, 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 the vapor from, from just water vapor. Um, so that there's a lot of uh, uh, condensation on the walls. Then we open up the windows, and that way you create a wet wet walls, which is a good base for uh, wild yeast to grow again. Which is something we did do in that case. Um, but you do notice just fermentation starting much lower if if you if you do that. Um, yeah. But that would be the only case in other situations, which is most of the time actually, or almost every, all the time. You require certain what you get as a result. Actually, the yeasts are givens in a way. So you build your whole brewery, lambic brewery, around the fact that you know you have these wild yeasts, and everything else you do is is, is based on that. Um, because we get the question also often like, do, do the yeast evolve every every year, or is it different each year? Or, but it isn't. It's it's that's why we brew in a cold period of the year. We only brew between October and April. Right. when it's cold enough and during the nights, so that there's no evolution of bacteria even during the day um, um, in that period. That's why we brew in that period, because we know at that point we have a stable um, culture of or, or flora of, of yeast in the in, in the environmental air. Um, and so actually the, 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 that is quite stable. Um, yeah, that's amazing. I remember first hearing you actually on a, I think it was a, 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 a sorry, I was gonna say, I was gonna say lambic. There was one lambic um, from VAT one hundred eight. Am I right in saying was that the VAT number? It's possible. Yeah. yeah um, it was the first time I'd ever really had goozer and lambics. To be honest with you, uh, well, I say the first time. The, the actual first time was back at some bottle shares that I used to be involved in, where. You know, I, I'd turn up with an IPA or some stouts or whatever. And, the first time you properly tasted it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, the first time properly tasted it, it was on a virtual tasting with you, organized with Paul Davies and uh, a yeah, yeah, different yeah. brewery market. Yeah. Those beers were the thing that sparked my interest in wild brewing. I was really blown away, particularly by the VAT 108 and the fact that you get these yeah. flavors just from the myriad of yeasts that are in the air. Yeah. Talk us through the fermentation process and then the aging process. So you, you've moved it to a fooder. How long does it take to ferment? What kinds of things are you looking out for during active fermentation? And how do you go about aging and blending those beers? Yeah. So in the, in the, in the, in that, in that case, indeed. So after the cool ship, the beer will go to the, the fooders. And then um, the, the primary fermentation takes about seven to 10 days. Um, then that's at that point you really see big activity there's um foam coming out of the of the fooder there's uh, a lot of co2 being created basically and uh, um um just to keep things clean we actually connect flexible pipes from the fooder to like small stainless steel tanks just to yep. pick up all that uh foam coming out um because otherwise it gets quite it gets quite slippery on the ground and your fooders get very dirty and you know it attracts flies and other, and other stuff so you don't really want, you don't want that at all actually um, so it needs to be clean. That's one thing. That takes about yeah seven to ten days, I would say. Um, sometimes maybe a little bit longer even, but it, it can vary. Um, and then actually it goes, it it, it settles down, um, and you go into aging. And aging actually is also the reason why we use casks. Actually, so 
um, because there's an, an important link there with the casks and aging. Because um, sometimes people ask me like, okay, what are the, where do, do the casks come from? What have they been used for before? Um, and so on and so forth. Um, that's a question we, we often get. But actually what we really want is a cask that has been used for Lambic before and has been used for Lambic as much as possible before. Because what we're trying to achieve is what we call um, uh, in Dutch, Malse Lambic, which they say, I think translated into English, it's mellow Lambic. So where the acidity is soft and in the background, it supports the taste, but you also get fruitiness, you get um, um, maybe some, some smokiness, some phenolic uh, flavors. You get some vanilla from the oak, perhaps not too, not too much, or, and so on and so forth. So it's a whole balance of, of flavors and tastes, and where where, where the, the acidic part is is just, or, or the this acidity is, is is part of it, but not the main dominant part of beer. So that's a very important thing to to keep in mind. Um, and so the the wood in the cask actually becomes, let's say, a sort of archive. So by putting lambic in a fooder or in a cask and doing that so many, very so many years again and again and again, each time you use a cask, you actually feed it, you feed the wood with uh, this microculture of, of, of yeast that actually survives in the wood. Right. And so by putting lambic in there, in a, in a lambic cask, um, after a few months, you get interaction between the microculture in the cask and the beer inside the cask. And this is what gives the aging. Um, so you, you get a primary fermentation because of the yeast from the cool ship, but you get the aging because of the micro microculture uh, in the cask, in the wood. And that's an important thing. It's not, you don't get aging just by leaving it to oxidize. Not at all. That's not what's, ha what's happening. Uh, on the contrary, uh, the cool ship is the only point where you want oxygen. You allow it to go on the beer. On any other part, it's a big enemy in beer. Yeah. So, so that's 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 those are some let's say the, the main reason you use casks for aging, and and what the point is of aging is to get this interaction between um, the microflora inside the wood, and that actually creates these complex flavors, um, the complexity. I mean, if you, you taste young lambic, it, it tastes a bit like a German Hefeweizen. Right. It's, okay. You have we have wheat in the beer. You actually taste it very clearly. It still has a lot of residual sugars. It's also um, a hazy so it's it really looks and tastes like like that when it's when it's very young uh, and you have to transform or that has to be transformed by, by, by the aging into something that's almost more like white wine so it's a very it's a big transformation process mm. but that's because of the the, the wild yeast in, in in the cask what kind of i suppose it won't be finishing gravity if okay let me rephrase this <laughs> What kind of gravity then are you hitting after primary fermentation? Because obviously you said earlier you're getting down to like 95, even, you know, higher apparent attenuation by the end of the beer mm -hmm. when it's being packaged. But after the, the primary fermentation is over, what, what sort of gravity are you hitting then? If you get still getting that kind of wheaty, malty kind of character. So, so our brews are are between um, it, it's very so we make strong we make stronger brews as well for for um, so lambic which is brewed stronger for mariage perfect brews which is at sixteen degrees Plato mm. and then otherwise it's at fourteen point one degrees Plato for for when when we're brewing uh, uh, lambic. Yep. So w w once it's obviously matured in uh, the wooden casks, how, how do you assess whether the beer is ready to be blended? And then how do you decide on the right 
blend of those lambics to turn it into a goozer. And then how do you scale that up into full-scale production for bottling to ensure the ratios are correct? Yeah, so it's a good question. <laughs> uh, basically, we, we do tastings of lambic from different fooders and different casks uh, weekly. Uh, and we taste about 12, uh, and we analyze 12 samples, uh, 12 different casks each week. Mm-hmm. Um, take in mind that we have 161 fooders at the brewery and 40 small casks. Um, so it takes us about three to four months to taste everything right. and to analyze everything. <laughs> but of course, some things we can leave because we know, okay, this is doing what it's doing and that's good. Um, some things when you're preparing for blending, you know which ones to follow up with and you know which ones to, um, to, to, to you need to, 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 to pay more attention to. Or if there's a, a, a new cost that you're starting up or after a repair of a cost, because we also repair our own costs in our quick bridge, um, we have to follow up. Um, but let's say we do about 12 samples a week. And then it's, uh, firstly, it's, it's uh, tasting, so sensorical analysis. And then we also analyze in our laboratory. Um, we will analyze. Uh, taste can be, it's, it's trying, we try to do objective tasting, but also some subjective tasting, like um, certain things we're looking for, typical flavors for, let's say, your mariage perfect goza. Um, one variable is quite simple. It is, it, it says, um, Good for my gas profit, yes or no, because <laughs> we know what we're looking for, mm. um, <laughs> and that would be one variable. Um, other things would be like, do you do you taste diacetyl or or some things like that, or or is it or does it have too much um, acetic acidity, or but also try to that's what we taste, but also this is things we start we we measure. So we measure, um, of course, we measure uh, the, the alcohol percentage, fermentation degree, um, but also uh, Total the, the acidity of the beer, um, total acidity, um, um, acidic acidity as, as well, um, so on and so forth. So we have about 30, no, let's say almost 40 different variables, I would say, per sample that we would in the end uh, have analyzed. Uh, and this gives us, a, gives us a good view of um, all the casks, the quality of the beer in the casks, the, uh, the, the state in which it is, um, and of course, the beer is selling, you know how much beer you need to make for uh, the next bottling. We make blends of 600 hectoliters. Um, and also, okay, we'll, we'll need about, um, average, that would be six, seven uh, fooders that we would blend together. Um, maybe some small casks would be added to that as well. Um, and then we can actually, based on those, those analysis, we can actually make the blend on paper. But of course, everything was tasted, everything was analyzed in the lab, and then we can do the, 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 the blend on paper. So because you've got these very well-established brands, so to speak, within your yeah. portfolio of beers, it, it must be a real challenge to recreate those time and time again, given the nature of aging in wooden casks and yeah. and blending together like that because that i mean it's one thing for breweries out there who listen to this that make you know spontaneously fermented beers or you know barrel aged whatever's as a one-off you know but to do it again and again with a beer like yeah, that sounds like a real technical challenge yeah but in a way perhaps it's a bit of a paradox if you say as a one-off uh, if i think about it that way um because in the end what we're doing is not just once because you can't just make lambic beer once um we've, we've my 
if I conclude, and when my father started, we were almost around for almost 50 years now. We have casks at the brewery, the oldest ones that are in our brewery. I mean, that we have been using ourselves, have been in the brewery since the 80s. And those casks are actually some of the oldest, which were used for Lambic since before the First World War. Right. <laughs> yeah. But as I said, the, the, the casks actually are an archive because you have the, the microflora yeast in, in the wood. And so in a way, um, you can't just make Lambic once. If you want to make Lambic beer, you need casks that have been used for Lambic. And you, that's it. let's just say that today it's, it's not very easy to find that. <laughs> uh, so you need to make, uh, so we do it as well. We buy casks, even sec well, mostly secondhand casks. Um, now we have, I would say today we have sufficient casks. We don't really need to buy many new ones or, 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 or ones to replace others. Um, but if you buy ones to, to introduce in your brewery, you need to fill them up with Lambic one, one year, use it for only a few months, maybe, fill it up with more Lambic and get a rotation going because you would just want to feed the wood with the microflora. And only after that, you actually have, it takes us about, from our experience, we can say 10, 15 years to get a cask to become a Lambic cask. Right. And only then you get the top quality that you're really looking for. And even then, the still the oldest casks that are 100 years old are even better than than just to get like the super elegant, fine tastes and and um, yeah, it's it's it, it, it's crazy. It's a bit it sounds a bit cliche, but really the oldest casks give the be the best results. Right. But that really is the, the fact of Lamic. And if you if the question is like how do you get consistency, of course, as I said just earlier, like the the, the wild yeasts in the environmental air for us is a given even, but let's say there is a variation in that every year. It's not enough to get a big difference in taste. In any case, a big important thing as a brewer is, um, because it's not only just a blending, of course, we're also brewers. So, um, we are brewers. So it starts with the correct selection of raw materials, the correct selection of malt. Uh, we actually select our barley. And then go to the malter and say, look, it has to be malted this and this and this way, and uh, this long on the kiln, that temperature, this humidity, so thick, you have to turn it around every so often. Um, all those things are, 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 are looked at to get the right parameters of the malt, to get what we call in our brewery, lambic malt. Um, not every brewer can do this because you need to buy the malt in, in bulk. It will do it for small sizes. Um, but this is this is also part of this consistency. You need to have consistency in your brewing. We have a, an automatic brew house. Some things are still manual, but in the end, what you're putting in in the, every brewing season in October will make one week of brewing where we're actually just testing the new harvests. We're testing everything works. Uh, the equipment still works, of course. Uh, sometimes uh, there might be an issue with the equipment as well. Um, but then. Um, we can every the recipe that the, the that the that the brew house is doing is what we put in. So it's just our it's, it's the result of our experience with brewing. The brew house itself is built by us. It's designed by my father and my brother. So it's it's all built around this style. And if you can then say, okay, this is how we want to brew the season. I mean, it's the same methods, but um, maybe some timings or temperatures could slightly change based on what you have as raw materials. That is to create consistency. You can copy that brewing during the whole uh, um, season. Um, then you have consistency here in brews. And then you go with to the cool ship where you pick up the wild yeast, which you know what they're going to give. If you feed them A, they will give B or C or and or mm. A, E and so on as a result. 
Um, East is like a transformer. They transform what you give them into something else. Uh, and then you go to the casks, where actually you introduce a beer to older um, cultures of yeast. And that actually also creates consistency because you have this archive of yeast that you is actually um, aging your beer for or during all these years. And each year, each season, you're all again feeding the beer to those to, to that same archive. And it's and it's and, and, and that also creates consistency. And yeah. then of course you're still you still have to blend. And then when you're blending, you do it based on taste and, and the in the lab analyses you know what you can blend together to get a certain result and taste. So it's, a, it's of course, also experience. That's 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 maybe part, perhaps also the art part of it. Um, one part is science because you follow up on the quality, the technical quality, and then the taste, let's say, and the, the decisions on what the end result should be is maybe the, the, the art part. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Okay. So the longer you keep going, the more consistent you get, essentially. <laughs> Yeah. Well, if you want to be a good lemon brewer, you just need to keep brewing lemon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and of course, keep work hygienically and 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 keep your eye on quality. Not just brew to brew, but you know, uh, you need to really uh, focus on all that. Yeah. Now, I presume all your beers are bottle conditions. Uh, almost all of them. Um, we have okay. a few beers like our Kriegboen, the Framboise Boen, and the Faro. Those three, those are not bottle conditioned. Faro traditionally has never been bottle conditioned. Right. Is there a reason that they're not bottle conditioned? Is that to do with the fruits and the fructose? Or? Yeah, so the Kriegboen, we have Audekrieg, which is bottle conditioned. Uh, and Kriegboen is also made with, with um, whole cherries, uh, so cherries fermented with uh, the beer. But we're not looking, for, it's just part of the concept of the beer is that it's not bottle conditioned. You get more um, um, residual sugar also in the beer um, of the fruit, but also we, in that beer we still add some, some sugar because it's what people expect uh, the beer to yeah. have. Um, in Framboise, that one is actually just um, also similar as Krieg, but in that one we don't add extra sugars, it's just residual sugar from the fruit. And um, if you would re-ferment re re um, raspberries, so it's raspberry, Framboise is a raspberry beer. So if you would re-ferment re um, raspberries, um, the bread yeast actually um, uh, break down the fruit fruitiness. So you would end up with, after, let's say, if you bottle condition that in the first week, you would still taste the, the fruit. But like after half a year, it would have like an amber-colored gueuse where you, you don't taste the fruit anymore right. at all. Wow, goodness. And so it doesn't, so in our, yeah, you could say like, okay, we add a fruit to it, but if you don't taste it, you're just a dark color. That's not really a good, uh, <laughs> not a yeah. good point. Yeah. So with the ones that are bottle conditioned, how much sugar are you seeding those? with and how do you i mean I, i'm sure the answer for this is probably experience but how do you know the wild yeast aren't going to over carbonate those beers given particularly over time given that you put in just a really simple sugar in there for them to consume part mm. of this is, is a, a bit of a um a personal question because last year i brewed a it was meant to be a heritage esb using chevalier malt but the yeast i used with it for what i thought at the time was the only fermentation it was going to have basically didn't utilize maltotriose. So I ended up with this and the combination of this yeast and this heritage malt left me with a beer that stops at something like 10.30 or something, some ridiculously high gravity. Yeah. So 
the only choices I had was to dump it or to put some Brettanomyces in it. So, you know, the Brett won out and it's been sat there for a year and it's chomped its way happily down to terminal gravity now. So I've got a really nice wild beer to package, which I'm aiming to do really soon, but I've never packaged a beer like that. And I'm worried if I put too much dextrose in there to yeah. seed that bottle, I don't have, you know, exploding bottles or anything. Um, yeah, that's hard to tell by uh, just like that because there's a lot of variables in play. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how, how do you go about doing yours? Because obviously, obviously more au fait with those beers. Well, with, with, with Outer Creek, Outer Goose, so sort the of bottle conditioned beers, well, actually, the, the the main idea behind getting bottle conditioning is my making a blend of, of young Lambic beer that still has residual sugars from the brew mm-hmm. uh, together with old Lambic. Um, so the, 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 react, the actual result of bottle conditioning comes from blending young beer and old beer together, um, where the old beer has uh, the, the evolution in taste, evolution of, of the, the, the yeast even, um, together with the young beer that contains or from, still contains a lot of fermentable sugars. If you bottle, if you bottle them, blend them first and bottle them. Um, even in the older beer, the the wild yeasts um, they are very tough yeasts, so they are inactive, but they're not dead, so they actually reactivate as well. And you get bottle conditioning because of that. Um, you could, add, but we don't really do that. But we, you could add some some sugar if you want to get bottle conditioning, of course. But that's not really the point of how it goes. Right. You really just do it by blending young and old lambic together. Right, I see. Yeah, and same with, same with uh, the cake. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm also interested, before I round up with a few of the questions, more about industry and, and how it's looking in Europe at the moment. I'm talking about Ode Creek. Have I pronounced that right? The, the yeah, cherry? Pretty well. Yeah, pretty well. Pretty good. Um, yeah. oh, check <laughs> me out. <laughs> so I only had that beer for the first time recently, and I was absolutely blown away by not only the colour, but the cherry character. And considering it's made purely with actual cherries and no artificial flavourings, it's so intense and so fruity. And I mean, my wife does like beer, but she doesn't really like sour and wild beers. But she had that. She was like, wow, that's amazing. So that's, you know, kudos there. High kudos from her. <laughs> like, how do you get those intense flavours in your beers using things like cherries and strawberries and raspberries and things? Starts with the, with the correct selection of, of cherries, obviously. Um, you can, if you do, there's so many different varieties of cherries. Um, if you if you select, we've tested different varieties and um, even at a very small scale recently, a few years ago, we tested, we did some tests with different varieties and it really was, was interesting to taste the effects of um, different um, cherries and, and, and the intensity of taste that it gives and the fruity taste that it is more almondy or vanilla-like and, and so on. Um, and then the body it also creates. The, so yeah, how, how, how do we achieve the, the character? So it's, it's, it's a good, um, it's a selection and then also the, the right, you have to choose the right lambic. Um, and then you have a choice of how much cherries you actually put in the beer um, per liter. So we will actually start by making a cherry lambic, which is um, mostly more than half of this would be uh, cherries compared to the demand of volume of uh, young lambic of one year. This will macerate and then ferment together in, in, a, in a fermentation tank. And that will be the, the base with which we will blend other lambics uh, from different other casks um, to make um, cake bone or out of cake bone or cake mariage prefer and so on. Um, that would be that would be how it works. Um, 
I'm just thinking, um, how do you ensure it doesn't get over attenuated or gushing? That was the question, I think. Yeah, also. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> you have to, you have to, uh, it can be many reasons why you get uh, gushing maybe or, or, or yeah. Um, you also don't want to, you know, when you have, let's say, let's say like this, um, a reason for gushing in beer could be, for example, that you have um, molds or something in, in the beer, um, which have um, hydrophobic particles, you know. Um, so if you have um, hydrophobic particles in your beer from somewhere, um, when you open the bottle, the result is that the beer will want to fly out because you have so much things, so much particles in there that just want to go away from the liquid. Um, they get created by molds uh, between other things. Um, so if you have fruit, for example, um, you have to always consider the fact that fruit, uh, on on the fruit, you actually have, it's not sterile. So yep. so you're, you're, you're bringing in fruit, it's not sterile. So when you're harvesting as well, it's important that the fruit gets harvested, that it gets cleaned. Is it sterile 100%? <laughs> no. But that it gets cleaned quite well and that there's a good selection that you don't um, when I, I see I see this often in, in in videos from other breweries, not not necessarily lambic breweries, but just any brewery trying to work with fruit. Um, nice videos where you know see people going in trees, they they pick the cherries or whatever that they're harvesting, and everything goes into the container with the leaves, the, t the twigs, and everything together. Um, at that point, I'm already thinking like, look, you don't know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> how sterile all that, all that is. So you could get results uh, where. Either you just get beer that's extremely flat, or where you have beer that's gushing because you don't know what's going in there. Um, yeah. So yeah, a good a good selection and a good a good follow up on on uh, just sort of this so that's the technical aspect aspect um, just on the harvest already of the fruit um, is is quite important. Um, yeah. Yep. What are some of the biggest challenges for brewery like Boone and how do you approach overcoming such challenges? I mean, I, I would imagine the last few years in particular being quite tough with COVID mm -hmm. and lockdowns and now a war in Ukraine, which is obviously f affecting the supply chain. Yeah, uh, there's definitely, definitely different challenges. Um, economically, indeed, you have uh, the war in, in Eastern Europe and, 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 and all that. And, and of course, the whole COVID uh, the whole pandemic uh, that, that that played out. Um, I think that every brewery has been hit by this in any in in, in many different ways. Um, I think for us, we're luckily relatively solid, or we came out of this pandemic. For example, so far, let's say it's it's. it's I hope we can say that it's over. It's not not really gone, but still, doesn't seem like it's it's coming back in in a, in, a, in a very bad way at this point. Um, we were able to we able we were able to come out of that in a strong way. So for that, I'm quite happy because um, I know we're not the only we're not not everyone can say that. Mm. Um, the economy in right now is completely ruined. So everything is uh, just the cost price is going up incredibly. I just just an hour ago, I got another email from a supplier who tells me their prices are going up twenty eight and a half percent. And these are just normal percentages these days, you know. It's uh, yeah uh, for anything going from glass bottles that have, um, have I think glass bottles have become fifty percent more expensive since a year, year and a half. Cardboard boxes, labels, um, wheat, malts, 
even you know the the, the the office paper you need for your printing or your printer you know everything's more expensive so yep um that's a challenge for sure um but I, again i think luckily maybe with alamic brewery that we're in a niche where the people who drink our beers you have on one hand you have people who, who drink our beer every day um don't have to um forget that either so it not, you don't have to exaggerate in price because of that, because we really have people here in our region. We sell most of our beer in Belgium um, and around the brewery. Um, they drink an Audigris every day. For them, it's a normal beer. But then again, um, they the, a, lot of, a lot of our people who choose a Goza or Lambic beer, they know that they pay a bit more, but they get certain quality. And I think it's yep. important that we can make sure that we can always, always, always assure the quality of our beer and never... Now, if there's a, a bottle of our beer going out of the brewery that 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 for some reason has an issue for me that is that it is that is it's a big issue that is something we need to look into directly if that happens but the point is and the goal is that it doesn't happen. um that's one but i think a big challenge today and i think the more in in the brewing industry is, is like um we are focused as i said earlier where we make lambic beer and for us it has to be a, a mellow beer and a big a big term that is used today, you mentioned it before, I've not mentioned it so far, the big term being used today is sour beer. Mm-hmm. But we're not a fan of that name because for us, that's the, 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 the point of the beer is not that it's sour. But for, I understand, or we understand that for a lot of people who drink it for the first time, that's the thing that comes, that's maybe perhaps the thing that really shows like, oh, what, what's this, what's going on with this beer? Or <laughs> yeah, yeah. It doesn't taste normal. Uh, maybe for some beer people, it would even taste like, oh, there's something wrong with this beer. Because they maybe expect uh, the top fermented uh, uh, bronze strong ale of 8% or something. And then it tastes yep. sour. They would say, look, this beer has gotten bad or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's what I thought the first time I tried um, any Lambics. <laughs> yeah. It, when, I, when, I, when I read uh, reviews on, on Untapped, for example, people just give their quick opinion. And I see that in Belgium, generally people understand the beer, but you go abroad, um, even let's say just the Netherlands, um, where we are selling more and more goods as well. So there's a, the people are actually enjoying it there. But there, of course, there's so many people who don't understand it at all. And they just bought it randomly off a shelf somewhere, tasted it, and they say, oh, I had to throw this in the gutter because uh, it's it just, I think the beer went bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm quite sure he just didn't understand what he was drinking. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But that's it's- the challenge. And then to communicate about what the beer is, I understand that sourness is, is a big part when you're not you don't know the beer. That is a good way to set the expectation in a way. But after that, I think it's a just for that maybe it's a good term. But after that, it's 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 a bad term because then it seems like the sourness is becoming the point of the beer. Like the more sour it is, the better it is. But it's mm. absolutely not the case. Yeah, if, that's like saying if you drink wine. Wine is also sour. It uh, for us a good lambic beer has the same acidity levels of like white wine. Nice lambic is like white wine. Yeah. But if it's too sour and you say it's sour wine, no, then we're talking literally about vinegar, which is vinaigre French for sour wine. Yeah, you know, I was I was literally about to say your beers remind me of white wine. They have that quality and acidity to them. And, you know, fruitiness. I totally agree about the sour thing. It kind of does feel a little bit with a lot of breweries mm. that they're chasing a very small niche of drinkers who use things like Untapped or go on Twitter or Facebook and pass yeah. comment just to, 
have more extreme hits of more extreme flavors you know it's it, this one's more sour than that one that one's more high in abv than the last one this one's got 28000 grams per liter of dry hop rather than 27000 grams per liter of dry hop and so on and like you say you know that, that drinkability in some yeah. ways is for some drinkers at least is getting lost by yeah. the extremities yeah, and that's and that's and that's an interesting and that's actually a thing that we, that I see quite clearly because, as I said, we make our lambic beers for the people here in Belgium, people from our region. We drink this since ever. So for me, it's also part of our tradition. It's not just how we make the beer; it's also the fact that people drink our beer, um, and it's the people who drink our beer that make sure the tradition also continues. Um, so, uh, but for them, it, 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 the drinkability is very important. You're, you're drinking a gurza, and after that. that Nice large glass. You say, hmm, "Great, give, I'll, I'll have another one." And 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 with a lot of great beers, that's what you say automatically, or or you drink your glass and then, oh, it's already empty. <laughs> it <was Yep>. <laughs> that's a good sign when you make when you drink beer. And it doesn't mean that all the beer has to be the same. Not at all. That's not at all what I'm saying. It's just this drinkability is is, is important in beer. And you don't, but you notice that that um, there's also this. It's already there for a long while, but you have this trend and, and this part of the market where people are, are just drinking one beer and saying that was interesting and I'll try something else. And then it's all about, you know, um, when, when, when beers mention the IBU on the label and, and, and these kind of things, they're like, oh, it's this much, it's this much. Um, and this was so much in alcohol and this was much lower in alcohol. It's interesting facts, but for me, it's, it's, I never read the label. I just drink the beer and then I, I assess what I taste based on what I taste. Uh, maybe then, then I'll check check out the label. Is there some specifications on it or something? But yeah, it's. But of course, if, if someone if someone is more interested in drinking beer that way, that's 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 everyone's opinion. Everyone's uh, everyone, yeah. that's another way to have fun about around beer, I suppose. Yeah, but but it creates a challenge. I think sometimes also towards the perception of what quality beer should be. Mm. I'd be interested just as we finish up to find out how the brewing industry is looking in Europe at the moment uh, and how you see it panning out over 2023. But I'd also be interested, you're based in Belgium and I'm here in the United Kingdom. How has exporting beers to the UK looked for you since, well, whenever Brexit happened, it just seems like a big, massive blur now, um, unfortunately. I mean, it's... I don't want to get on a big Brexit run, <laughs> but it's too late. The, the cat has been let out of the bag. I mean, the whole thing, the whole, I mean, I, I voted remain, you know, cause it just, it, it, that made sense. Being able to trade freely with Europe made sense. But unfortunately just over half of the British population didn't agree. And now they're the ones saying, Oh, I didn't realize that we weren't going to be able to do deals with Europe and stuff anymore. Oh, prices and stuff are going up. It's like, well, of course that was going to happen. So, but I, so I talk a lot on this show being based in Britain, although we do get listeners from around the world about the impacts of Brexit. It is affecting a lot of UK breweries really badly. Yeah. Um, but I'd be interested from a European perspective of what it's like selling into the UK and whether it's even worth it. All right. Yeah. Well, um, I'll just pick on pick up on the the Brexit topic immediately. Uh, 
because I feel like that's important to you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't no, know, okay, but... that impression. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I totally understand the question because it's, I, I when, when, right before, right up until the moments and, and the years, years uh, ahead of, of Brexit, uh, it was a big question, like, what's going to be the impact? How how, how are things going to be practically? Because um, or are they going, are they going to be import rates on beer or not? Or is, 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 what are going to be the the barriers that are that will be created for 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 exporting beer from Belgium to or from Europe, perhaps to to the United Kingdom? Um, in, in in the end, um, I think from from our perspective, and as I think many for many breweries in in, in Belgium, I suppose in Europe. And perhaps even outside of Europe, um, but from the European perspective, um, of course you work with, or generally you work with an importer or for multiple importers in, in, in the UK. And um, a lot of the importers in the UK actually have experience with importing beer, not only from the EU, but also from outside the EU. They have from, from Norway, which is actually outside the EU, but also yep. from the United States, for example, and so on. So for, for a big part, they're also already used to uh, a big part of the paperwork. Um, of course, the, the European beers, Belgian beers, I suppose also German beers, also all are quite important also in the UK in the volume. Mm. So I suppose the workload has grown a lot uh, for the importers uh, what, 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 in terms of administration. Um, for us as brewers, many brewers, they, they, the export is done in the way that the, 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 we say, okay, it's up to our importer to do all the administration or a big part of the administration. But mostly they're also specialized. So it's so in that way. Um, so we are impacted by, by Brexit um, in different ways. So from a sales perspective uh, and from a purchase perspective. So from a sales perspective, let's say um, you could be impacted. Our experience was um, a bit um, unclear in a way that we actually started, our, our, our sales were growing in the UK, still are actually. Um, we're also, uh, uh, Presence in, in, in at a few retailers such as Waitrose and Tesco yeah. uh, with some of our beers, um, and, and and those were actually growing even even during Brexit um, and well, before and after, um, and so we actually didn't see a, a, a drop in our sales. Um, luckily, I just remember the only the only first months of, of Brexit that there really was an issue at at customers because there were suddenly certain checks needed to happen, um, certain documents needed to be ready. Um, faster than normal, um, and that created actual a big a bottlenecks. Uh, trucks were on, yep. on, on, the, on the road here. Uh, we saw images of this. It was quite crazy. You saw the images as well, I suppose. Yep. <laughs> uh, that's what I remember. But I think after that, um, f- from a styling perspective, not much has changed. Um, I can still go to the UK myself. I can still visit bars. Um, there's people who are interested in beer. I think that's still very important. Um, I actually don't think there is an import rate um, on beers. Um, also, if you go back to standard import rates from the World Trade Organization, beer, I think, is 0%. Right. So that's a good thing. Um, so in that sense, but administration is more complex. Um, we have to apply, uh, or our customer needs to apply uh, extra labeling on the bottles. Uh, they need to mention the importer on the bottle. whereas um, Whereas I need to, um, if before Brexit, I needed to mention the producers of Plavo Heboin was mentioned on the label, but now it's not sufficient anymore. 
Um, so this gives us extra work or gives our importer extra work. This creates extra costs, so things become more expensive. From a purchasing perspective, um, we could perhaps uh, in the past we have bought um, barley from from the UK. Um, at this point, there's less reason to do that. Um, and one important reason, for example, would be um, when we are exporting to countries where with whom the EU has certain agreements, or even within the EU, but let's say outside the EU with whom the EU has agreements. Um, often, or most importantly, one of the one of the um, uh, things that the EU wants, which is actually quite logical, um, the agreements come down to okay, uh, there's less import uh, tax on the on the products that coming from that are coming from the EU. But this, but the EU says, okay, if you're exporting to a country outside of the EU um, and you get a permit to export there um, within the agreements that are made between the EU and that country, you have to show that your product is made with, um, for, let's say, practically everything comes of ingredients for a few exceptions or a few percentage as an exception, maybe, but that the biggest part of your product is made with ingredients coming from the EU. So if the UK is not in the EU anymore, then you say, okay, let's not buy our ingredients there anymore. Even if the quality is fantastic, mm. simply because you can get into trouble with permits for exporting your beer. And I can imagine that it's for beer, even though maybe it doesn't, maybe it, I mean, it's for beer, but imagine if you're, now I'm just going to another industry, but imagine you're a car, car manufacturer where all the parts are made in different parts of the world. Uh, and suddenly, I know in, in the UK there's a big car industry as well. And then suddenly, they're not part of the EU anymore, and there's no deals. And suddenly, they need to be paying more taxes. And there, you can imagine how suddenly that completely disrupts supply chains simply because of administration that is actually not done, or, or, or agreements that don't exist. And that mm -hmm. is a big issue, I think, uh, for, for 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 Brexit. That was the big issue, and everyone saw it coming. And do something about it. <laughs> Yeah, well, 51% uh, of the British population didn't. But hey, yeah. you know, they were promised blue passports and lots of money for the NHS, which never materialised. So there you go. Mm -hmm. um, so just the last question then, just before I, you know, just to stop me going on any more Brexit rants. How do you see the brewing industry panning out in Europe over the next year, particularly with this global recession we're now entering into? It's a, actually, it's a very it's a good question because it's a question that I ask other brewers as well um, and other brewers ask us uh, because I think no one really has a good idea at this point, really, because the, the way the economy is evolving, the way um, cost prices are going up, the way um, bars and restaurants and so on are, are hit twice. Uh, first COVID, now cost increases uh, in recession. Um, we've lost a lot of bars in Belgium. Um, bars are, are, more, are closed more often as well. Um, I think it's something, I, I assume it's something based on what I see, what you see not just in Belgium, but also in Europe in general. Um, so the brewing industry definitely is going to get some, some um, things are going to move in a way like there's going to be more consolidation between brewers, small brewers who don't keep an eye on their cost calculations, gonna, are going to get in financial trouble. That's given the increases we see quite quite uh, sure um the customers need to follow people are having have less purchasing power so something i already see is that brewers will make more expensive beers and more expensive products 
um, or in the very expensive beers, they sell less or are not able to recuperate this, the volumes of before 2020 mm. um, because people will try to save up more on, you know, you don't know what your bill, your, your invoice is going to be at the end of the year for gas or electricity and you have to pay for gas for your car and you have to, you see everything in the shops going up in price as well. So uh, let's just buy one bottle instead of two bottles. You know, it's, 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 and I think for certainly for the more more expensive breweries, it's going to be even even more difficult. Um, but I do see and what I do notice is that the breweries that have a stable quality, um, that have a correct price, um, do keep. Um, and I, I think we're amongst that, and also, but I see from other brewers as well. They do keep their their sales, and they do keep um, reaching the people that that. And I think simply because people want certainty. Um, I think they're going to take less risks when buying a bottle where, oh, this, this is a new brewery, uh, let's try it. Uh, or this is a bottle of 15, 20 euros. Um, don't really know what it's going to be like, but, you know, let's just say, I think people are going to do that less. Yeah. Um, and we're, we're, I'm quite sure we're already seeing that, I think, um, right now. Yeah. How it will affect the industry? Well, yeah, big question mark. Absolutely. Well, thanks for being on the podcast Carl, it's, it's been fascinating um, having you on and, and really insightful. I'm sure for our listeners, I, I definitely got a lot out of it. H- how can people find out more about Boone and possibly pick up your beers? I suppose that's a huge question given that you sell all over the world. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just go to our website if you want to figure out more about our beers or if you ever want to visit the brewery. Um, on our website, we have some information about that as well. We have a bar and a shop at the brewery as well. We do brewery visits. If you're ever in Belgium, we do as well, I think. Always welcome. Um, if you want to find our beers, go to your, your your local beer store and ask for it. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'll definitely be bringing my blue passport that I got from Brexit. Woo! <laughs> and uh, coming over. Yeah, no, I'd definitely uh, love to visit. So, uh, yeah, thank you. Well, it's that time again at the bar for another week of the Hot Four podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, and all other good platforms. Be sure to visit hotforward.beer to find out how we can help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. Remember to follow us on social media at Hot Forward Beers and for another week. Cheers. <laughs>